0: Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. Before we get started, I just want to say that unless anyone says that they are speaking on behalf of a particular organization or group, you should assume that each person's views expressed on Tatter are theirs and theirs alone. I just want to make that clear to avoid misunderstanding, and now that I have effectively precluded any such misunderstanding, let's get started. Here's Tatter. Jonathan Haidt is a social psychologist in the business school at NYU. Along with Greg Lukianoff, he co-authored an essay in the Atlantic titled The Coddling of the American Mind. In that piece, they were critical of certain practices in higher education, practices such as trigger warnings, ones that they argued were cultivating pathological thinking in students. In response, Colby College English professor Aaron Hanlon wrote an essay in the New Republic titled the trigger-warning myth. In that essay, Hanlon challenged some of the assumptions of Lukianoff and Haidt. I recently had a chance to talk to both Jonathan Haidt and Aaron Hanlon. In that conversation, we discussed the core purposes of colleges, universities, and academic disciplines. We also discussed three things, each of which you might consider a tactic, strategy, or value, namely trigger warnings, but also free speech and viewpoint diversity, and for each of those three, we discussed whether it was helpful to or a hindrance to the achievement of the core purposes of colleges, universities, and academic disciplines. I'm now sharing that conversation in this episode, which is titled, Vet the Technique. So, um, welcome here, and thanks to both of you. Uh, welcome to Tatter, And just to make sure everyone knows who you are. Uh, my understanding is that, John, you are the Thomas Cooley Professor of Ethical Leadership at the Stern Business School at NYU. Is that correct?
1: That's correct.
0: And are you one of the co-founders of the Heterodox Academy? What's your relationship there?
1: Yes. Um, I co-founded it with, uh, after a lunch with Nick Rosenkrantz and an email Uh, from Chris Martin in sociology. The three of us all thought we had found a similar problem in our fields, and we decided to put up a website.
0: So I'm struck by uh, a similarity in in approach uh, between you and a former um, departmental colleague of yours, still at UVA, uh, Brian Nosek. You're both co-founders to address uh, problems you saw um, in the academy and perhaps, uh, to some extent in your case, beyond where he founded, co-founded the center for open science. Uh, yep. so is there, is there something yeah. on the water down there in Charlottesville?
1: Well, no, it's, you know, yeah. Brian and I were, we still are good friends. We, we ran our labs, uh, together sometimes and we're both just intense systems thinkers. And when we see a problem, um, you know, we don't get mad. We think systemically and we say, Hmm, how can we solve this?
0: So, excellent. Well, we will talk more about some of those problems and also, uh, frankly, the extent to which uh, they are problems uh, in just a little bit. But I also want to make sure everyone knows who Aaron Hanlon is. Uh, Aaron, you are just, well, normally you're just up the road from me. I'm at Bates College in Lewiston, Maine. You are an assistant professor of English at Colby College, so just up the road, but you're a little farther away right now. Tell folks where you are.
2: Uh, That's correct. I'm very fortunate to be on a sabbatical this year as a visiting scholar in history and philosophy of science at uh, the University of Cambridge in the UK.
0: I am very envious especially given uh, how high my pile of grading is, but um <laughs> enjoy sabbatical while it lasts. And um I want to actually get started by talking a bit about the Heterodox Academy. So very briefly, John, tell us what the Heterodox Academy is.
1: Uh, so it, it grew out of a, a speech that I gave to the, uh, the major conference of social psychology in 2011, um, when I was invited uh, by the president to give a talk to, at a plenary session on the future of social psychology. And here I was, mostly done with writing The Righteous Mind. Um, I had always been on the left my, my whole life. And I was writing a book on political psychology and on how we actually need to listen to each other to correct for our confirmation bias. And I began to notice that everybody in the field was on the left. There's only one person, Rick McCauley at Bryn Mawr, um, who was known to be a conservative. And I thought this is a systemic problem. And especially as the cultural war was heating up and as issues of gay marriage and inequality and immigration were issues, um, I thought this is going to damage our research. So I gave a talk to that effect. And I said, uh, it wasn't a moralistic talk. I really just said to my colleagues, "This is a scientific validity problem that our our, our process uh, is going to fail, and we're going to get the wrong conclusions if we don't have um, if we if we don't have institutionalized disconfirmation. If we can't count on other colleagues challenging us um, for whatever we say." And so I gave the talk, and it was received very well. Um, my field is not, uh, you know, everyone's on the left just about or center left, um, but it's not. Um, it 's not very it 's not that ideological it 's not that activist. It really is a field of scientists. This is social psychology i 'm talking about and it was received pretty well, and a couple of people came up to me afterwards, including Lee Justin, Jared Crawford, and said they they were interested in developing this idea. And so we wrote it up as a paper. Uh, Phil Tetlock also joined. We wrote it up as a paper. Um, published in Behavioral and Brain Sciences, making the case that um, social psychological science would be better if it had more viewpoint diversity. And again, it was a total systems process quality of research argument. Um, and um, as that paper was circulating, um, Nick Rosenkrantz, a law professor at Georgetown, wrote to me, and he had written a similar paper about law, about how um, all, almost all law school professors are on the left, and law students are trained by left-leaning professors. They go out into the world. Half the judges are appointed by Republicans, and they have no idea how those judges think. At the same time, I heard from Chris Martin, a prof- uh, uh, grad student in sociology, who'd written a similar paper saying, you know, on sociological issues, everyone's on the left, and that interferes with our ability to figure things out. So the three of us decided to put up a website. It was just a blog. It was just to sort of keep, uh, you know, keep these questions in the public eye. And that was in, Jan- in September of 2015. That was before all the protests. Uh, coincidentally, it was a month after my article with Greg Lukyanov came out in the Atlantic called The Coddling of the American Mind. Those were two totally unrelated threads. Um, so both of those go up in August and September of um, 2015. And then the Yale protests happen uh, in November of 2015 and you know, and that's when campuses seem to be sort of turned upside down. Um, and then heterodox Academy grew a lot after that. Many people were concerned about these trends. Um, and so, yeah, and it's grown since then. I no, I no longer run it. Deb Maschick uh, now runs it. She's a professor from Harvey Mudd college, a psychologist, and she's doing an amazing job, uh, but that's the history.
0: So, and just before Aaron, I want to get your uh, thoughts about heterodox in a moment, but I want to uh, make sure I'm uh, clear on this. Are you a part of Heterodox as well, Aaron? Do you have any relationship to the Academy?
2: Yes, I'm a member for sure. um, And I can talk more about my thoughts about why that is, if you like. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, I mean, um, so what John said, I take very seriously um, the basic premise that viewpoint diversity is important for academic inquiry. And I think this is certainly the case in the natural and social sciences and in and, and the humanities and humanistic social sciences as well. Um, so this is something that fundamentally I believe is an important um, uh, cause to recognize that is the need for greater viewpoint diversity in higher education. But it's also, I, I was attracted to heterodox Academy in particular because of my sense of interacting with, uh, various members over time was that these were people who had, you know, a good faith interest in in understanding a variety of viewpoints, certainly, and a good faith faith interest in engaging with people with whom they disagreed and who disagreed with their approaches. Myself, very much included um, on a few issues. So um, I do think it's it's an organization with an important role to play in. Uh, really improving our pursuit of truth and the best ideas in the academy, but I also think it's an organization that is also sort of filled with people who, whether by temperament or maybe just an extraordinary ability to kind of temper themselves um, and and be vigilant about where uh, our biases lie, an organization that has a lot of people like that who I've really enjoyed engaging with.
1: Well, Aaron, that, that is wonderful to hear. And let me jump in here to make it clear to listeners that uh, Michael did not arrange a session with two people who were likely to agree. Um, rather, I think listeners should know that you were the very first professor who critiqued the Coddling of the American Mind article. You're one of only three or four who really wrote substantive essays um, disagreeing with us. Um, since then, since 2015, you've been writing all over the place, um, generally defending the integrity of the humanities, the usefulness of the humanities, generally pushing back against uh, people who claim there's a, a free speech crisis. So if people didn't know that you remember paradox Academy, as I, I maybe Michael didn't, um, they would assume that you're a you know, typical lefty uh, humanities professor and Haidt and Hanlon are going to go at it. Um, uh, on 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 Michael's podcast, and so I was so pleased when I saw because I get the weekly email from heterodox Academy. When I saw your name on the list of new members a couple months ago, I was so pleased. But it really confirms what I've always thought about you, um, which is that you are a true academic. You are interested in scholarship and truth. You're not playing the partisan games, and your arguments are never ad hominem. So I really appreciate that about you. Yeah, and that's uh, again, I think
2: one of the reasons why it's um, I, I think so much of this of the difficulty of sorting out these issues, which certainly are not just complex, but also have the ability to touch on a lot of different types of, uh, of temperamental and political nerves, depending on, you know, who you are and where you're coming from. It's just so important that when we talk about these things, it comes from a baseline understanding of good faith engagement and a kind of mutual oh. respect.
0: Yeah. So I I I hate to potentially spoil the love fest but <laughs> okay um, let's go now. But I well, <laughs> well I don't, I don't know if you're going to go at each other on this or not. Um <laughs> I I I I want to talk about uh, an article by Stanley Fish and full disclosure I I shared some excerpts with you both in advance but I want to if you'll indulge me just read uh, a couple of closely related passages from an article that Stanley Fish wrote Uh, called On Balance. And the context for this is the question of just how important viewpoint diversity is for colleges and universities and for academic disciplines uh, within them. And uh, Fish, who is a literary theorist, uh, I'm sure, Aaron, you know him better than I do, given his uh, (laughs) background in English. Uh, Mm -hmm. He's he's also uh, a former university administrator, And he used uh, used to write a column at the Chronicle of Higher Education uh, about uh, university administration. And it was in such a column that he argued that balance, uh, so for example, bringing in an opposing lecture uh, to stand in opposition to a controversial speaker who's coming to campus. So, if Bates hosted Charles Murray, for example, uh, if I, I might, in the in the spirit of balance, try to bring in someone who is going to argue against uh, the notion that uh, racial differences might have some genetic basis. So, uh, Fish argues that balance can be useful. Um, And he says he's even used it, but in his terms, quote, it is not a real value. It is a strategy. And as such, it's always political in nature. And he goes on to say, balance is not the answer to an intellectual question. It it is the attempt to evade or blunt an intellectual question. You you resort to it, not in response to the imperative of of determining truth, but in response to pressures that originate more often than not from non-academic constituencies. And then finally, he he goes on to say, take the insistence that faculties be balanced so that there is a proportionate number of conservatives and liberals. That is the least defensible form of balance called intellectual diversity by its proponents, but it's really affirmative action for conservatives because it assumes a relationship and even an exact correlation between one's performance in the ballot box and one's performance in the classroom. And he asserts that there is no such correlation. The politics relevant to academic matters are the politics of academic disciplines. And the fault lines of those politics, disputes, say, for example, between quantitative and qualitative social scientists, do not track the fault lines of the national divide between Republicans and Democrats. And so it's, he's, he's basically saying that the politics of academia is not identical to the ideological politics uh, defined by liberals versus conservatives. And so it's a mistake if your goal is Seeking truth, which is presumably uh, at the core of what we're a- after as academics, it's a mistake to think that you need ideological viewpoint diversity to advance that cause. Are, uh, is Fish wrong? So
2: I partly agree with Fish that balance isn't necessarily unto itself a, a baseline value. I had a lot of qualifiers there, but for a reason, because um, I'm not sure that it really matters a whole lot uh, whether we take it as a value versus a strategy, because I think as a strategy, it may even improve the conditions under which we pursue these other baseline values. So I think one could actually agree with Fish's parsing of balance and where it is useful and where it's perhaps not, and the ways in which I would also agree with him that it can be kind of politicized um, when one sets. The balance, you know, either too far on the left side of the spectrum or too far on the right, then it can sort of hide actual ideological positioning. Um, but, but one can agree with those things and at the same time think that balance is strategically important to create conditions in which people can really optimally pursue, you know, ideas and pursue learning.
1: Uh, so yeah, I agree with everything that uh, that Aaron just said, and I agree with the first half of what what Fish said, not the second. Um, let me expand on why why he is so right about the first half that balance is not the goal. Uh, what really has clarified things for me is teaching a professional responsibility course here at NYU Stern, and if you if you focus on what is the uh, what is the telos, what is the purpose, you know, the Greek word telos or purpose or function, you know, what is the telos of a, of a doctor? It is to heal. The telos of of a lawyer or a judge is justice. The telos of a professor or a scholar is to seek truth uh, by the various means uh, uh, that are different, as Aaron has pointed out, that are different within the different disciplines. But once you see that the telos of a university is oriented around truth. Now, we have both the research and scholarship aspect, which is truth, and then we have the educational mission, which is passing on that truth and and also teaching habits of mind that will equip students to find truth and navigate their way in the world. So if you focus on the telos of the university, then what you see is that balance is irrelevant. Um, If you're trying to uh, portion things fairly, then, you you know, like between siblings, they each want the same number of M&Ms. Okay, fine. Maybe, you know, you have to be fair. But artelos is scholarship and truth. And so um, to the extent that our speech codes or our distribution of people makes it hard for us to do that, then we're wrong and we need to change. And so when psychology was all male and we were writing about women's development, we got it wrong. We couldn't possibly understand much of psychology if we were all male. And so diversity was um, an epistemological necessity. I would say the same thing holds for political diversity, not in all fields, not in the natural sciences generally. But if you're studying race, gender, inequality, immigration, uh, prejudice, almost any of the topics that we study in social psychology, and if we're all on one side, then we we have two problems. One is simply the lack of a variety of views. We're not likely to get it right. But the other is that with politics, you tend to get orthodoxy. That is my enemy. I am trying to break up orthodoxy wherever I can find it. And I don't think we need balance to do it. So the idea that we should have an equal number of conservative and uh, liberal professors is absurd. We never would. The pipeline simply couldn't provide that. What we need is enough to break up orthodoxy. Um, That's my concern. And so I would go beyond fish and say that balance is, is a strategy. It's not a necessary strategy. We don't need balance. What we do need is enough variety to bust up orthodoxy. The fear is that um, in any discussion, and I see this happening, um, in any discussion where someone proposes an explanation for, let's say, a gender disparity in, in tech fields or something, and lots of people in the room are thinking, well, you know, what's, what's the pipeline? Are there differences of interest? What's going on here? But if people don't dare say that, and someone says, oh, it's just systemic sexism, and we all nod our heads because we are afraid, we are afraid to propose an alternative hypothesis, then our field has failed. We cannot achieve our telos. We are wrong and we produce bad results.
0: And so to make sure that I'm clear on what you're saying, John, is it, at least within a social scientific field such as social psychology, it's that our ability to generate hypotheses that are going to ultimately be valid and our, and our ability to do an adequate job identifying rival interpretations for data sets will be uh, limited in, if, if, we, if we have a kind of ideological orthodoxy. So we're all liberals. It'll be, it will be limited in a way that will prevent us from ultimately uh, ruling out the uh, invalid hypotheses and arriving at something approximating truth.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. I mean, there's more to it than that. But yes, that's this, this central point. Um, Actually, if I can just briefly give one example. Sure. So I I chaired a panel from a long, complex history. Um, I ended up chairing a panel of America's top experts on poverty from the left and the right. And it was convened, it was jointly sponsored by AEI, American Enterprise Institute, which leans right, sort of free market, and Brookings, uh, which, you know, is officially nonpartisan, but effectively leans left. And they work together a lot. They're both wonderful organizations. And so we had we worked together for a year, and it was just amazing to watch what happened. So, you know, there was some tension at first, but once we got into a groove of really trying to work together to find the truth, what we found is that the people on the right um, were afraid to say that birth control matters. If you want to break the cycle of poverty, the biggest possible intervention that we, we reviewed everything, the biggest thing to break the cycle of poverty is LARCs, long-acting reversible contraception. But the people on the right didn't want to talk about it because then they could get in trouble with the you know, various constituents that don't want that in there. And the people on the left, the second, the other really huge way to break the cycle of poverty is marriage. The effects of marriage are gigantic. But the people on the left were reluctant to say that. And so if either side had written its report on its own, the right would have stressed its favorite uh, causal processes, mostly personal irresponsibility. The left would have stressed its favorite causal processes, namely systemic and structural factors that lead to racism and sexism. Um, And each side would have had only a piece of the truth and would have been missing some of the most important elements. My point is poverty is really complicated. If you give it to just one side to solve, I guarantee you they will not do a good job of it. So
2: I I would like to just add a couple of caveats um, and complications to to what John said, mainly the first part of what he said. Um, I do think we need to be careful um, not to presuppose that a political identity um, or a a personal politics necessarily translates in a sort of straightforward one-to-one way into the classroom, for example, or even necessarily into the research one is doing. Granted that we operate with, uh, you know, with, with priors and unconscious biases and so on. Um, but I think often, particularly in the classroom, being very aware of one's own politics can actually translate into a serious effort to kind of not overplay one's political hand in the direction of one's own politics. So that's one thing I think belongs in this conversation. Another is going back to um, Stanley Fish, where he's suggesting that so-called partisan um, left-right politics don't necessarily map cleanly onto the politics of departments uh, of higher education, of the classroom, and so on. I mean, I think that is also an important point to to reckon with here the uh, The Academy um, in Literary Studies, for example, to take something like the study of American literature uh, as an example ha had a a period of time you know during the Cold War more or less when its professional consensus was to kind of in many ways reaffirm. Uh, US exceptionalism by and through not just our readings of the literature itself, but uh, the way that we talk about it in the classroom and the context that we that we give to it. Um, and I think we've seen historically a bit of a, a backlash to that, right, in the way that, that the American Literary Studies Academy has said, uh, maybe we should expand the canon to include underrepresented voices, maybe we should think about the ways that that Kind of nationalist project of American literature and literary studies um, might have been entrenching certain uh, powerful interests um, in the classroom and um, having you know an adverse ideological effect in the world, so to speak. So the way that those politics get played out aren't purely um, Cold War conservative uh, U.S. exceptionalism versus lefty social justice warrior. Um, Marxist critic backlash, but also they become conflicts of the ways that different subfields align themselves, methods, how much are we interested in the study of history as a context for literature versus how interested have we been in uh, continental philosophy and so-called critical theory. So we get actually a very complicated and uh, much more nuanced picture of departmental politics um, just to, to take my field as an example or, or, or one of the subfields within my broader field of literary studies, and so again, I think part of what it means to have viewpoint diversity, intellectual diversity it, it can 't just be discussed in terms of left right politics it must also be discussed in terms of methodological approaches, um, and fundamentally, what are the aims what, what is the telos of our uh, of our work? are, are we looking to reinforce a set of values? Um, are we looking for truth? And in what ways do those two activities begin to mesh and become inextricable and difficult to you know, to really work with and and pull apart, disambiguate?
0: One of the themes that I'm hearing across many of your comments is that given a particular uh, telos, we need to be cognizant of the conditions that are going to be conducive to its achievement. And I want to think about the conditions in the classroom that may be conducive to or potentially uh, obstacles to the achievement of whatever our our objectives are in the classroom, be it Sharing knowledge, or as you put it, John, helping students develop the habits of mind that will help them seek truth and navigate their worlds, whether it's asking students to uh, join us in questioning the purposes of the entire endeavor, whatever those goals might be, I wonder if some of the processes that you described uh, in your coddling of the American mind uh, article. Uh, John, if one could argue that some of them are potentially uh, conditions that help some students uh, feel uh, that they have standing and they have voice to actually uh, join in the enterprise. So to home in on something concrete, uh, trigger warnings. Mm -hmm. Uh, What of the argument that trigger warnings actually help students who might otherwise uh, not feel able to engage in truth-seeking with their peers, it actually helps them uh, do so.
1: so. So the idea of trigger warnings makes a certain amount of psychological sense if you, if you don't know a lot about psychology. So if you, just, you know, so if you just know that there are people out there with PTSD, you might think, well, you know, if we're going to talk about Vietnam and there could be a Vietnam vet in the room, maybe we should give them a trigger warning that we're going to talk about Vietnam. Um, or, you know, more to the point, if we're going to talk, if we're going to study a Greek myth and that Greek myth has a rape scene where Zeus rapes a mortal uh, and there's a woman of the class who's been a victim of sexual assault or rape, we should warn her. So that makes a certain amount of sense. And it seems like it's nice. It's considerate. Uh, and, and if we were in a feminist chat room in the 1990s where the practice originated, then I, I'm, I, I, it, that's fine. That, I, I'm very supportive of that. People can do whatever they want in, in private spaces uh, but a classroom is a very, very different sort of space. And if it was the case that we really had students breaking down with PTSD panic attacks, um, then we'd have to look more deeply into this. Now, that almost never happens. I've actually never heard a of case of that happening. Um, secondly, PTSD is not triggered by the word. It tends to be triggered by, say, the smell of a certain kind of cooking or the sound of helicopter blades or something idiosyncratic. So the very idea that we can give a warning to students uh, unless we do deep interviews with every one of them and know what triggers their 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 panic attacks, the idea that if, if we're going to talk about um, you know Greek myth, we need to warn students, um, that just doesn't really work. It, it it sounds helpful, but it it's not. More to the point, and here's the really central problem: um, the way to get over any kind of anxiety, the way to get over any kind of phobia, is systematic desensitization. It's a, it's a Pavlovian process. Uh, where a, a stimulus in the environment triggers a, an anxiety response. And what we've, Greg and I spoke to a lot of therapists about this, and they all said the same thing. The way to get over these anxiety problems is exposure to mild cases of them. And so reading a Greek myth and then nothing bad happens to you, that's a really good thing. That is actually the right way to do it. And several said you know, avoiding avoiding exposure, avoiding triggers is a symptom of PTSD. It's not the cure for it. So the idea doesn't actually make much psychological sense. It seems contraindicated. Um, we can't find psychiatrists who think it's a good idea. The American Association of University Professors is against it. So again, it seems like a nice thing to do. I think it's an ideological thing to do. Because if you look at how they're used, it isn't just things that could truly trigger trauma. It t- becomes... Um, caught up in the ideological game. And so anything that a person asking for the warning deems to be offensive, like uh, poverty, colonialism, oppression, racism, these things are terrible. And therefore, if we might want a trigger warning to advertise how terrible they are. So the whole thing becomes just a complete mess. If we are now supposed to assume students are so fragile, then we're going to treat them that way. And it's going to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, so again, the, the subtitle of our book is why good intentions and bad ideas are setting up a generation for failure. Good intentions, sure, but I think the effects are likely to be negative, and I don't know of any empirical evidence to show that they're beneficial.
2: Yeah, so I think this comes down to, in so many ways, what precisely we're talking about when we say something is a trigger warning, mm-hmm. and um, and and specifically under what conditions. Uh, and in fact, I actually. Um, have moved away from using the term trigger warning because it has taken on this kind of pseudo therapeutic um, connotation yes um, that that would put the use of the term itself into you know potentially could to miss to to be misleading or would put the use of that term and the person using it into territory of maybe speaking to a psychological phenomenon or a treatment um phenomenon that that more often than not such a person is not equipped to uh (laughs) to to speak about um with any uh uh, knowledge or, or confidence from the evidence but um my, but my understanding of the sort of thing that is often called or has been called a trigger warning is, in my view, much more benign and in many cases is a kind of form of conversational prodding and priming through which one might get a sense of precisely that somebody is in the process of some sort of relatively low risk desensitization you know, through discussing a topic or reading a text. Um, and so for me, it's always been, you know, since 2015, you know, one of the first things I wrote about this in, in response to Jerry Coyne, uh, before I wrote in response to John and uh, Greg lukyanov's uh, Atlantic article, w- was that in so many ways, this um, giving students a heads up about material can be a way for... Uh, faculty to educate ourselves about where the students are with a particular issue in the room and it's not an exact science figuring out you know what do I need to what do I need to give a warning about or a heads up about or whatever Um, and it's certainly not a good practice to impose you know the regulation that everybody do that or to give in to so-called demands uh, for trigger warnings, if in our professional judgment, it, it, it's outside the scope of what's productive in the classroom.
1: Um, so, uh, yeah, I can see what you're saying about how it would be a way that we could educate ourselves about what issues are powerful for them. But I actually think that's a bad idea. And, and here's why. There are two rival conceptions of our students, and it, it matters a lot which one we accept, one is the idea that students are anti-fragile. That is, um, they are going to uh, have a bunch of experiences that are going to make them stronger and smarter and tougher, um, that they need these experiences, that they've been overprotected. American kids have been vastly overprotected since the 1990s, especially. They come to college. The worst thing we could do is c- continue the overprotection There's a wonderful metaphor from Van Jones, we have it up at Hedrox Academy, where he says, I don't want you to be safe emotionally or ideologically, I want you to be strong, and he urges them to avoid any discussion of safe spaces and stop thinking that way. This is the gym, Uh, you know, I'm not going to take the weights out of the gym. So that's one conception. Um, In that conception, you would not ever want people screaming racial epithets, but You would not treat students as so fragile that we need to know whether we can talk about a Greek myth without discussing first whether everyone can talk about a Greek myth. So that's one conception. Students are anti-fragile. A very different metaphor. I just found this meme online a few weeks ago. There's a line from some poet. We are all balloons full of feeling in a world full of pins. And that's a terrible way to think. That is a horrible way to think about yourself or about other students. And young people, my kids are nine and 12, and they start, my, my twelve-year year, they start using the word trigger. Trigger just means I saw something or heard something that I don't like. But once you call it a trigger, you are going down the road of thinking of yourself as a balloon full of feelings in a world full of pins. This is disempowering, demotivating. And to the extent that this way of thinking is primarily pushed on or accepted by members of historically marginalized groups, that would mean that the more time kids spend in college, the more we'll have a disparity, the more we'll basically harm the, the the people who think this way. That's why I think the whole, once you go down the road, I think you're making things worse. Now, what I think Aaron might have been, what he might have been saying is that we should think, if we avoid the word triggers, we might still think about what should we tell our students. And I'm all in favor of just being explicit on the syllabus. Here's what we're going to do in this course. I'm not calling it a trigger warning. It's not even a warning. It's just, here's what we're going to do. You know, we're going to watch these videos. Here's some of the topics we're going to talk about. Um, Say that up front. And I would also favor, There's one exception, there's one place where I do favor trigger warnings, where content warning, which is when you see, when you see visually a body that has been severed, um, I discovered this doing my early disgust research. I would show people pictures and I showed amputations. It upset people in ways that they were still bothered by it days later. And I realized, oh, my God, I really, I, that was bad of me to just show them. So, so there's something about visual images of, of decapitation or amputation that is so awful and so haunting uh, that like on the news hour, on the PBS news hour, they, they will give a content warning for that. So I could see that but but a but mm. a verbal description no no definitely not you don't want to go down that road
0: and I I want to I want to open it up for Aaron to respond but I just want to jump in to uh confirm Aaron my understanding of something that I, I think maybe I saw you make this case in the trigger warning uh, myth and that that is the the idea that a, a a warning is not necessarily tantamount to an invitation to avoid a warning could be uh, amount to, uh, asking people to steal themselves, S-T-E-E-L. So, yeah. so, so I, I so am, am I recalling that correctly, Aaron? Yes, that's correct. And I would even
2: go a little bit further, um, and say that, um, it, and, I, and again, I've, you know, I, I've since, I agree with John that there's a bit of a problem in the language, even of warning and trigger and trigger warning unto themselves. But, um, a kind of uh, content note um, uh, raising the issue in, in a way that prepares students for what's to come in a direct manner and so forth, these types of practices. I would say even that they don't, they don't even presuppose the fragility of the student. Um, what they do is they give me some feedback. If I'm speaking for myself and how I might manage it in the classroom, they give me some immediate feedback on the frames through which students are approaching these types of things. When I know that whether it's a good thing or not, many of them are coming through the door into my classroom with a certain understanding that these things are to be traumatizing, right? So there's, I hope you don't find me making too nice of a distinction here. But I think it maybe a more concrete example would be, for example, a conservative student who's worried that because I've written some things uh, that identify myself as left-leaning politically, that I might penalize them with a grade in my classroom because I know that they're a conservative. That conservative might have that fear when they walk into my classroom, even if it's not well-founded. But then I need to meet that student and that fear where it is right? For me to understand how to proceed and how to disabuse them of that fear. So that's an imperfect analogy, but I want to say that even, that not only are our content notes and so forth not necessarily ways of shutting down a conversation, um, they're also not necessarily ways of perceiving my students as fragile.
1: Hmm. Okay, I can certainly see managing expectations Mm -hmm. and I can see your point about the conservative student, but I think in that case, he's expecting a certain kind of injustice. And so you're managing expectations, you're creating an environment in which he's more likely to engage, but you're not assuming that he is fragile and will be damaged. That's my concern. As long as what you do there doesn't validate the idea that he's a balloon full of feelings, then I'm in support of it.
2: Right. And I think that's that's where... We, we've been in agreement, the, the piece of this that we've been in agreement on is that I myself am, am not interested in, in, in constructing a, an idea of, uh, of a student as fragile, nor in approaching them as fragile. Um, I'm more interested in establishing a, a, a sense of trust and mutual understanding as immediately as possible in the classroom so that I have all the knowledge and all the tools at my disposal to reach that student, um, where they are rather than where I wish they were. Great. I agree with that.
0: Hey folks, this is Michael. And I just want to jump in to offer thanks to those of you who are monthly supporters of Tatter. Your individual donations mean a lot to me and they also help offset the costs of production. For those of you who are not yet supporters but want more information about how to become one, go to patreon.com slash tatter for more information. But those of you who are students at the college where I teach, please do not do that. I can't accept your support. Everyone else, though, come on in. The water's just fine. With all that said, let's get back to the conversation. If you'd asked me 10 years ago if I thought that free speech was essential to a college or university's mission, I would have reflexively said yes. Uh, But again, I have uh, fallen under the sway of Stanley Fish, uh, who has written another piece uh, titled, titled, Free Speech is Not an Academic Value. And he, at one point, well, I think his premise is that free speech is certainly a democratic ideal. If you want to Um, have a self-governing society and you want to ensure that every member has voice, then obviously each member needs to be free to speak their mind in in a way that will inform deliberation on that issue. But he goes on, he, he says in this, in this piece at one point, here I quote, free speech is not an academic value. Accuracy of speech is an academic value. Completeness of speech is an academic value. Relevance of speech is an academic value. Each of these values is directly related to the goal. Back to telos again. The goal of academic inquiry: getting a matter of fact right. Uh, and so, uh, even though he says the free, the free exchange of I- the free exchange of ideas suggests something like a Hyde part corner, people on the corner just expressing their opinions. He says that's not central to the mission of a college or university. What's your reaction to that argument? And I'll ask John to go first here.
1: Sure. I completely agree. I think it's absolutely wonderful. Uh, I couldn't have said it better myself. And it goes right back to the point about um, let's identify the telos of an institution or group, and then let's get the speech terms that are appropriate for that. And I think he does a great job of that. Now, the, it, um, I'm very glad that I live in a country where I can't be arrested by the government for what I say. And I think even Holocaust deniers should not be arrested. So because once you do that, then you, you don't want the government arresting people for what they wrote. So free speech is a great idea in terms of constitutional jurisprudence and what the government can do. And I agree with Fish. And I think with with both of you, I'm presuming um, that that is really not what we're about in the academy. Um, it, it, you know, it, as it gets politicized, people on the left seem to think free speech is what is what white fraternity brothers claim if they want to shout, sing, you know, racially offensive songs. And I agree that doesn't really have any place on campus. Free speech is not the issue. Um, It's open inquiry. Uh, I think that's what Fish calls it. It's uh, accuracy of speech. It's getting at the truth. And so he has some wonderful passages. Thanks for sending this this out to us. Um, So here, I'll just read one section here. Any number of topics taken up in a classroom will contain moral and political issues like discrimination, inequality, racism. Those issues should be studied, analyzed, and historicized, but they shouldn't be debated with a view to fashioning and prosecuting a remedial agenda. So he's saying we should be trying to find the truth in the classroom, not trying to motivate the students to take up arms and change the world. Since many discussions of, of uh, um, social issues seem to uh, take place in the classroom with a more of an activist air. I think that too is, is a corruption of what we should be doing. My concern is not free speech. It's does everyone feel free to speak up if they have an idea counter to the politically preferred narrative. And at some schools, at many schools, not, not all by any means, but at some schools um, in many departments, students write to me, they tell me that they don't feel free, um, that they self-censor like mad. And that I think is, is a big problem for the academy. Yeah, I,
2: I agree with much of what John just said, perhaps disappointingly. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I, what, what I might add is um, fish actually maybe undersells or perhaps underestimates the, the um, role of free expression in academic inquiry. I just want to make that point. I think that the the real challenge is what we do with those scenarios, which I think are undeni- undeniably the case in day to day academic life, in which the value of free expression is actually diametrically opposed to the value of academic inquiry. Mm-hmm. And in yeah. that case, I agree with Fish that one should prioritize. Uh, the value of, you know, more times than not, the the value of academic inquiry, because that is our mission. That's our institutional mission. Um, but many other times, actually, the two kind of go peacefully hand in hand, and they move uh, along the same path toward the same kind of goal. Um, it's just when they butt heads that that I would agree with Fish that, the real mission of an institution of higher education is truth seeking. It's, it's seeking the best ideas that will enrich uh, our lives and our polity. And uh, therefore that mission must take precedence over a kind of absolutist, you know, free speech position.
0: So to go to a concrete example, um, according to the most recent article I could find Dinesh D'Souza is scheduled to speak at Stanford University, invited or funded by the Young Americas uh, Foundation and invited by a conservative uh, group. Does he have any business speaking on a university campus?
1: Um, So, yeah, I'll I'll start with that one. I think Fish makes a really interesting distinction here between the core function that the university uh, must do, which is this kind of speech in the classroom, then he distinguishes between all the other stuff that happens on campus, where activism is fine, uh, and the university is basically just in the business of crowd control. So he uh, here's a little quote. He says, "'The university lets this stuff go on, but it doesn't have a dog in the hunt. It neither affirms nor repudiates any of the positions that vie for attention in the circus it allows on grounds.'" Now, this actually is a beautiful brief for the Chicago principles on speech. The University of Chicago has this beautiful doctrine that says um, we we are a platform on which views can contest. So if Dinesh D'Souza was a PhD professor at some university and a scholar who had evidence for the things that he believed and they were offensive to most people, well, then I think we'd all agree um, it's entirely appropriate to invite him and to for him to give his talk and for students to go or not go or protest outside, but that they shouldn't stop other people from hearing it. Now, if he's not a scholar, if it's just part of the circus of activists trying to bring people on campus to provoke the activists on the other side into apoplexy, which they can capture on a video. Well, you know, it's all rather unfortunate that this happens, but my preferred policy uh, would be just let it happen. You know, if somebody wants to provide, uh, invite a provocateur, just ignore it. Um, but I can certainly see if a university decides that they don't want a circus, that they're going to have relatively tight controls on the extracurricular uh, stuff. I think that's very defensible too. I, you know, I think again, it should all be in service of the telos and it's an empirical question whether an open circus or a more closed and curated, um, extracurricular environment is more conducive, whatever, you know, let let a bunch of schools try it both ways. And if, if there's a consensus that one is the right way, then I'll support that.
0: Ever the experimentalist. Uh, Aaron, what are your thoughts on uh, D'Souza and Stanford?
2: Yeah, it's. I, I think it's, it's, it's a pretty good example of where somebody like D'Souza, who has a, a track record of really distorting um, our knowledge of the past and uh, sometimes just making things up, where you might wonder whether the truth seeking purpose of the institution is well served by having somebody like D'Souza um, have a campus platform and therefore be elevated in that platform to a degree of legitimacy which then makes it that much easier for his um distortions to to take effect. Um, that said, you um you know you won't you don't find me Um, trying to get him banned or uh, trying to shout him down or anything like that. But you would absolutely find me making the argument to everybody that if somebody like him were invited, we should all agree to find somebody better and not bother with this. Um, And if that type of argument is persuasive, uh, then good. But if it's not, then, then I do think that the best best solution to that problem is uh, similar to what John said is just um, maybe have another event turn your back on it, ignore it, invite a historian who knows what they're talking about. Um, (laughs) that, That sounds like a good idea to me.
1: Let me just mention that one thing, though, here. Uh, something I'm coming to see more and more is that if university leaders would begin at freshman orientation with the anti-fragility idea, if they would make it clear that you're going to be challenged here, you're going to hear things you don't like, and this is actually good for you, um, if if people have the anti-fragility idea, then D'Souza or Miley or others coming to campus isn't really a problem. In fact, that would justify, I think it was um, – Um, let's see what, the president of Brown, Ruth Ruth Simmons, when it was David Horowitz came and there were protests. And when he finally did come to speak, this was in the 90s, she went and sat in the front row. Uh, So I think if you have the anti-fragility idea, then you don't have to be so afraid of a provocateur on the other side coming, and you invite provocateurs on your side. It's only if you think that people on your side are balloons full of feeling that it becomes imperative to stop him from speaking because he will pop some of the balloons.
0: Yeah, and I actually, I agree with everything that each of you has said. Uh The only caveat that I would add is that even if you're right, John, that the uh, cultivation of this anti-fragility culture can uh minimize some of the problems that might otherwise attend these events, you can only cultivate that culture on your campus. You can't control who's going to come in from off campus. And if the costs of security to guard against that, to effectively manage uh, any sort of risk there becomes excessive, then I think that they're impractical.
1: Wait, but uh, Michael, why are the costs of security high? Who are you guarding against?
0: Who are, uh, potential, uh, let's say if uh, David, David Horowitz is coming to campus.
1: Think that they're fragile. That's the danger. That's why Berkeley has to spend so much money.
0: Well, if if they're concerned about antifa uh, or antifa protesters who are not even on the student body, how, how do they guard against that by cultivating this anti fragility?
1: Well, okay, but then you just so you limit you limit attendance to students with an ID.
0: Okay.
2: Well, yeah, uh, I think that the tricky thing is right is is that that the boundary between the institution, the university, and the surrounding community is you know is is not as tidy as we sometimes might like it to be, depending also on where the university is located. I, that's a whole other
0: issue. Um, but right. uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, you, you're, yeah. Your Waterville is uh, fairly remote. I don't, I'm not guessing you're going to get many Antifa uh, protesters coming to events there, but I could be wrong. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> so with just three minutes left, maybe one more question and then we can wrap up. And 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 the question actually is, Um, about self-censorship in the classroom. So I'm going back to that, uh, that, uh, critical, critically important space. Is, is, are there conditions under which self-censorship in the classroom is actually a good thing or is it always bad?
2: Self-censorship is already a a linguistic frame that has a negative connotation, right? And so I think definitely self-censorship is bad in a sense. But I also think that a lot of things that behaviors that look like self-censorship from one angle are also the marketplace of ideas, so-called doing exactly what it's supposed to be doing from another angle. So I would look at this kind of like a a Venn diagram in which you have self-censorship in one circle and the marketplace of ideas uh, coming to better conclusions about how we talk about one another, how we treat one another, and what ideas we are you know we're putting forward and um inaugurating as as better um and i think those two spheres actually overlap quite a bit and a, and a simple example of this is just that when i was growing up in um you know as a as a kid in in western pennsylvania in the 80s and 90s it was ubiquitous for people to use um ableist and homophobic language right to use the word gay as a pejorative for example yeah. That's one of those things where, you know, gradually the way to kind of work out of your your mind the, you know, the impulse to use that term in the pejorative way it happens through the conscious choice to not use that term in a pejorative way and the result I would argue is good that if comedians are showing up on campuses and making gay jokes from the 1990s and they're not getting a lot of laughs and instead they're getting boos and shouts well Um, that's probably a a signal not that self-censorship is kind of run amok, but that the marketplace of ideas is actually functioning healthily.
1: So I I think part of the skill, some of the skills that students need to learn are how to get along in a, in a polite society that is governed by rules and laws and, and that has a lot of diversity and a lot of room for misunderstanding. So uh, I think Aaron's right that if you define it as self-censorship, you sort of try to win the battle rhetorically and that's not a good, a good strategy. Um so to the, idea, the idea that students should think about what they say and, and have some sense of the social ramifications, I think that is certainly defensible. That is a skill I would want my kids to learn. Where it becomes a problem, and again, I'll always link it back to the telos of the institution, where it becomes a problem is if what they're, what they're doing, they're restraining themselves, not because they think it would be impolite or rude or something, but because they fear the social consequences of saying something that they think is true and relevant. And so okay. then what we get is called preference falsification. This is what we saw in Eastern Europe. Almost everybody disliked communism, but they couldn't really say it publicly. Uh, but So people lie a lot. When I would go to communist countries, I would hear that, that everybody's lying all the time. And then you get systems where nobody really believes in it, and it can collapse very quickly. Um, we, that's a bit of a dramatic example, but I think we do on issues, and here's where the term political correctness I think has a, a, a use. There are two uses. Aaron's example of how language became more politically correct about, about uh, you know, using gay as a pejorative, I think is a good one where that's the good side of PC. Um, there were a lot of people who were being routinely humiliated because of careless and casual language use. And so that's evolution and that's moral progress. Um, but when we can no longer talk about say the reasons for sex differences, um, there are a lot of sex differences in outcome. We're talking a lot about sex differences and um, Um, institutional sexism in the wake of of Me Too. And if those conversations are not honest, um, if people are afraid to say that there are differences of interest and differences in in the fields that men and women pursue, if you can get fired from a tech company for saying that, Um, no good comes of this. This is preference falsification. This is a violation of our telos within institutions, within universities. So I think overall, um, the speech climate has changed so radically. We haven't mentioned social media. This is probably the major single reason why it's changing so quickly. The fact that anything you say, even in a philosophy class, where when I was a philosophy major, you could entertain all kinds of horrible counterfactuals, you know, just to to try to uh, uh, draw out some moral principles. The fact that anyone could report that now on social media means that. Um, in you know what used to be called the ivory tower, we're now right out in the public square, and therefore people are widely self-censoring—not in the good way that Aaron said, but in the way that damages our ability to find truth.
0: That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Jonathan Haidt and Aaron Hanlon for taking the time to talk with me. For more information on each of them and also the essays that they've written, go to tatter.fireside.fm and find the page for this episode. You can offer feedback on this episode or any episode of Tatter by going to Twitter, if you are a Twitter user, and mentioning Tatter using the handle at tatter underscore rags. Whether or not you use Twitter, you can also post a review to iTunes. And either way, I will appreciate your feedback. In any case, thanks for listening and be well.